Welcome again to City Life this evening. Uh, it's good to see all your faces here tonight as we worship together and pursue God together. Just to clarify one thing, uh, Dean wanted me to do this officially. Uh, one, co-sign everything Nate said about filling up Anthony's jar. And two, um, we've been talking. There's a, a very real need in the village right now for Bibles. We brought Bibles two trips ago. And we came back last year, and they were still asking for Bibles. So I know we're already going to be purchasing Bibles for that village um, that we're going to ship to Food for the Hungry and then take with us, which is going to be awesome. I'm going to be able to teach this time we go about reading the Bible, why read the Bible, what's, what's it all about. And uh, so that is what the money is going to be. All right, but we're going to be giving Bibles, the very word of God, our daily bread, to that village and the people there. So I'm excited. Um, that we can do that and have that opportunity. And then just know that all those sponsorships we just picked up, every single sponsorship they sent, again, as they were saying, we've already sponsored that entire village. And sometimes there's kids that uh, hit, I think it's five years old, that those sponsorships come up in Laguasra, but we've sponsored so many as a church in the two campuses that we're now sponsoring from the neighboring village as well. So that's awesome. And thank you guys for your generosity because they sent 20 sponsorships. We knocked them all out. Hit them out the park. And those sponsorships do help them with things like livestock, education, medicine. So we're having an impact there. And if you got any questions about what is that like, man, we're going back in June. And just ask me or anybody that's been there. It's fantastic. It's awesome. And then one more thing with those announcements, the business meeting, you probably heard that. And we're like, that's the last thing I want to do on a Sunday afternoon. Probably bottom three, a business meeting on Sunday afternoon. But like they said, it's a celebration of, of just the faithfulness of God this past year, looking forward to all we we're going to do this year. And let me tell you, uh, we're passionate about that. And Fred, is, it's not just like one sheet of paper and we look at it for 20 minutes. No, there's, there's an entire breakdown. So if you have any questions about that, then I would encourage you to be there. Because one, we do that. But two, afterwards, we fellowship, man. If we're going to come together, we're going to eat. Right. It's just a city life thing. So after we do the business meeting, we all go down to the fellowship hall and we're going to grub, we're going to eat pasta, and then we're going to raise money to help send our kids to camp this summer. And our very own Anthony and Amanda Hiltz. Can y'all give it up for Anthony and Amanda Hiltz, right? They serve their tails off. They're on our governance team, and we'll be voting them in as elders of this campus, which really is giving them a label that they're already walking in, right? They've served so much. They help lead so much. So I'm excited that we're going to be able to vote for that. So if you're a member of City Life, be there so you can vote and put your vote a yes to Anthony and Amanda uh, becoming here elders here. And if you got questions about that, what does that mean? Again, you got questions about the business side of the church, then either ask me tonight or show up there on Sunday the Sunday after this one, not tomorrow, a week from tomorrow. But now that we got all that out of the way, uh, we are starting tonight a sermon series called God's Love Language. Pictures worth a thousand words, and we're bridging this gap from Valentine's Day, our culture's celebration of love, all the way to Easter, right? God's demonstration of love through Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection. But tonight, I, I want to turn to Isaiah chapter 64 verses 1 through 8, as we look at the first picture we'll look at in this series. It's Isaiah chapter 64 in the first eight verses. So you can turn there if you got a Bible. You can swipe there if you got you version. If you don't have either, there's Bibles in your pews. But again, Isaiah 64, verses 1 through 8. I'm reading out of the New Living Translation. And Isaiah says in verse 1, Oh, that you would burst from the heavens and come down. How the mountains would quake in your presence. As fire causes wood to burn and water to boil, your coming would make the nations tremble. Then your enemies would learn the reason for your fame. When you came down long ago, you did awesome deeds beyond our highest expectations. And oh, how the mountains quaked. 
For since the world began, no ear has heard, no eye has seen a God like you, who works for those who wait for him. You welcome those who gladly do good, who follow godly ways, but you have been very angry with us, for we are not godly. We are constant sinners. How can people like us be saved? We are all infected and impure with sin. When we display our righteous deeds, they're nothing but filthy rags. Like autumn leaves, we wither and fall, and our sins sweep us away like the wind, yet no one calls on your name or pleads with you for mercy. Therefore, you have turned away from us and turned us over to our sins. And yet, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are the potter. We are all formed by your hand. Let's pray before we go any further. Lord God, this passage opens with this cry that you would burst from the heavens and come down. And God, we thank you that as this passage is looking at, you did that in Exodus as you began this redemption story. And God, we thank you that you did that through Jesus Christ, God, sending him, God, to die for us. The Easter story that we're going to celebrate in a few weeks, Lord God. But we thank you for that, God. And we ask again that you would send your spirit here tonight. God, to minister to our hearts, minister to our minds, and God, reveal the truth of your word. Guide us in your truth tonight. For each one of us, Lord God, I pray you would speak and draw near and help us draw near to you as we follow you every day. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. So we're coming out of Valentine's Day. It's a complicated day, which is ironic because I think everybody would say that they want love in their life. They need love in their life. They want to love people better. Love is a good thing. We like love. And yet just like so many other things in our culture, we find ways to break off into groups on Valentine's Day. Factions, if I may. Right? There's, the, there's the head over heels in love, lovey-dovey social posts on social media group on Valentine's Day. And then there's the, the Grinch, but the Valentine's Day version Grinch that's by humbug all day on Valentine's Day. You've got the elitists, right, who are, who are like... I love my significant other every day. I don't need a day out of the year to do that, right? <laughs> and then you finally got the historical people on Valentine's Day who are like, you know that Valentine, St. Valentine was clubbed to death, then beheaded, then buried in darkness, deterred by his followers, and we're celebrating his, his day with chocolate and flowers. You've got all these groups, and before you can make any sense of it, it's over. Hopefully you scored some points with your spouse, and then you're back to just waiting for winter to end and Virginia weather to stop being schizophrenic and just get warm, right? That's Valentine's Day, but when you pause and think about it, it's fitting that the holiday that's awkwardly linked to love will be a little bit uh, complicated because if we're honest, love can be complicated. I was an English major. I think the other week I said I was an art major. Corey was like, do you lie? No, I was a double major. So <laughs> he was so confused. But I was an English major. So I've read Shakespeare, Lord Byron. I've, loved, I've read Pope. But one of my favorite love poems, because I think it's the realest love poem ever wrote, it goes like this. It says, love is like an onion. You taste it with delight, but when it's gone, you wonder whatever made you bite. Love is a funny thing just like a lizard. It curls up around your heart and then jumps into your gizzard. Love is swell. It's so enticing. It's orange gel. It's strawberry icing. It's chocolate mousse. It's roasted goose. It's ham on rye. It's banana pie. Love is all good things without a question. In other words, it's indigestion. All right? Love is like an onion. And it's true, there are layers to love, man. Love is so deep. You can spend your life just exploring the depths of love that are deeper than the ocean. There's more facets to love than facets on a diamond ring. And I believe it's because when you read in the Bible, 1 John 4, 8 tells us God is love. And if God is transcendent, 
He's above our understanding, and his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Then, man, love, it would make sense that it, too, can seem transcendent. Man, could that be why sometimes we fumble through it and we never seem to be able to master this thing called love on our own? You know, in 1 John, he continues to write in 4.19, he says, we love each other because he loved us first. And could it be that this is love in its proper order? And could it be that until we understand the heart of God and his heart for us, then we'll never truly get love. But there's a great quote by Billy Graham, which basically inspired this entire series and complicates things if, if we take that stance. Because Billy Graham once said, God loves you. And he loves you with a love that you don't know anything about because there is no human love comparable to divine love. God loves us. He loves us. He loves you. And he loves us with a love that transcends anything we know or experience on this level of humanity because we're broken. But God, I believe in his grace, gives us pictures of his love throughout Scripture and throughout his word. He doesn't want to just leave love transcendent and incomprehensible, but he gives us in his pleasure and in his grace, he gives us pictures and images of his love. Why would he do that? Aristotle once said, the soul does not think without a picture. Whether you've heard that quote or not, you've probably heard this idea that a picture is worth a thousand words, and it's not that far from the truth. We remember pictures long after words have left us. 90% of what we store in our brains is visual, right? We, we learn through pictures. We remember through pictures. We think using imagery. It's probably why about 70% of the human population falls into what are described as visual learners and why when you use visual aids, it can increase learning by 400%. For instance, if anybody ever heard of the iceberg principle? Corey, you raise your hand first. What's the iceberg principle? Sorry, I put you on the spot now. 90% of the iceberg is underwater. How does that apply to us? You just graduated from Wave College. You can handle this. Yeah, y'all are one. You just got married. What's up? What's up? What's, what's it mean? Right. There's the behind the scenes that leads to that 10%. And I've also heard it said it's the 90% that can often sink you. When you're not taking care of that 90%. Everybody sees that 10%. And thank you, guys. Uh, you can split this. Here's, you, you could probably have the love mug. And then there's a $10 gift card. So thank you. for. I, other people knew what the iceberg principle was. And uh, it's true. This idea. Like when I think of an iceberg, well, the first thing I think of is that Jack could have fit on the door with Rose, right? And he didn't have to die at the end of Titanic. But what I think of secondly is I think of, when I hear iceberg, I think of the iceberg principle. You show me an iceberg in the back of my head that's going through my mind because we remember through imagery. And somebody taught me that image when I was young, and I've never forgot it, right? That behind the scenes, that 90% that nobody sees, that's what keeps you afloat. And if you don't take care of that 90%, the, the character, your integrity, when nobody's watching, that's what sinks you. But that's the iceberg principle. And it's almost like God, who created the brain, knew how to best communicate and help us remember. Again, the soul doesn't think without a picture. You may not have the verses memorized, but you can remember the, the image. Like we were at the end of the worship set last week talking about the, the prodigal son's father, this image of the father. We were talking about the shepherd that left the 99 to get the one. And many of you may not remember that. That happens in Luke 15, but you can remember those images. God is a father. God is a shepherd and his sheep. So naturally, if we go looking through Scripture, we'll find pictures that God places throughout Scripture to help us get a better grasp of his love because it seems so incomprehensible that God would love us. How could he love us? But he gives us pictures. And for many of you, especially you guys just went through marital counseling, you heard the phrase love language, and you probably think of Gary Chapman's book, The Five Love Languages. 
But I want to look at six pictures that we find in Scripture that teach us about God's love. What are they? The potter and the clay, the sheep and a shepherd, servants and a master, kids and their father, friends, and then finally a bride and a groom. But tonight I want to look at this idea of a potter and the clay. We open with the passage in Isaiah 64 where it says, we are the clay and you are the potter. We are all formed by your hand. Even Job in the book of Job speaks to this reality. He says in Job chapter 10 verses 8 through 12, this is in the message version. He says, you made me like a handcrafted piece of pottery. Don't you remember how beautifully you worked my clay? You gave me life itself and incredible love. But you know, for pottery... It's pretty evident, like Isaiah 64 that we opened with points out, we're broken, shattered. We're we're prone to sin. Our righteousness itself is but filthy rags. And it's funny. uh, It's my dirty secret. I'm a huge John Mayer fan. I have two sisters. So when I was a freshman in college, my older sister introduced me to John Mayer and his music. And by the time he was on, like, his third album and I graduated college, I thought he was God's gift to green earth in terms of a singer and a songwriter. But I say all this because this week I was putting together a Valentine's Day playlist, like my top 30, 50 songs. It was hard to find a John Mayer song to put in a Valentine's Day playlist when you're supposed to be celebrating love because his are, they're not like wedding day love songs. Like his, his, he described his own music one time as having a sad hope. Like look no, diff, look no further than uh, the album Continuum. It starts with the song, I Don't Trust Myself With Loving You. Says you would you should be warm before I let you inside. There's there's one of his best songs, "Slow Dancing in a Burning Room." We're going down, and you can see it too. Now we're doomed. We're slow dancing in a burning room, and then towards the end, there's "Dreaming with a Broken Heart." Again, you're not going to play this at your wedding, but then the last second to last song is a song called "In Repair," and he says in this song, "So much to do to set my heart right. It's taken so long. I could be wrong. I could be ready." But if I take my heart's advice, I should assume it's still unsteady. I'm in repair. I'm in repair. You know, when we pause in life and begin to introspect and look at our heart and look at our lives, man, we do realize something's off. Something's broken. I I need repair. And, And most of our love songs and the advice of our culture, though, again, you can find ones you would play at your wedding or when you're about to date somebody or throw on that mixtape that you're going to give to her, right? Where it's like, follow your heart. Do what makes your heart happy. But when we sit and reflect, again, we often come to Jeremiah's conclusion in Jeremiah 17, 9, that the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? So love is complicated because, man, God is transcendent. He, when you think about it, can be complicated, but our very hearts are complicated and not always in a good way. But since some of you are no doubt already trying to take my man card or cut a corner off for quoting John Mayer in my sermon, let me redeem myself. Well, first, I'll fight you afterwards. Your, your whole idea of manhood is flawed, right? John Mayer can fit into your manhood. But secondly, uh, Troy is on Netflix. So we can pound our chest on that, right? The movie Troy is on Netflix. Now, from the movie came out, I believe, when I was either graduating high school, but I just remember I was at William & Mary and there was the, the college movie channel where all the new movies were on. And I can remember that would come on, and I'd have to watch it. I don't know if you have those movies where when they're on TV, it's like cancel everything because i got to finish this movie now. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Anybody else? What are some examples? Come for October. If that's on TV, you got to watch the rest of it. Shawshank Redemption, which is on every day on some channel. Yeah. Thor. 
Gladiator. Yeah, see? <laughs> Tombstone. Shout out. I can be your huckleberry. But dozens upon dozens upon dozens of times over the years, that movie has come on, and I'm like, well, I know what I'm doing for the next hour, and I'll watch the end of Troy. But the thing is, I've never, up until it came on Netflix, I'd never seen the beginning. Because Troy is good, but it's no gladiator. Right? Troy is good, but it's no brave heart. I'd never taken the actual initiative to buy it or rent it and watch it from beginning to end. So I would just come in on this movie 20 minutes or 30 minutes in when the Spartans are landing on the beach, Brad Pitt's getting out and kicking butt. I'm like, oh, this is cool. And then just watch it to the end. But I never cared enough to watch it from the beginning. And if you begin the movie there, you might think, man, why are thousands of ships and hundreds of thousands of men landing on this beach to fight and declare war on this city? And it's because of one woman and her beauty. This woman, Helen, had been kidnapped from one kingdom and taken to Troy. And this whole fight and battle was over her. Now, she might have struggled with some stuff in life, but she had to know beyond a doubt that she mattered. Like, all this stuff that's happening is because of her. And how much in life do we long to feel the same thing, that I, I matter to somebody, that I matter to God, that my life matters? But so often we think, well, my heart isn't beautiful. Like, Helen was known for her beauty. My heart is broken. It's wicked. It's in repair. You can go down the list, but to start there with our brokenness is like walking into the movie Troy 20 or 30 minutes late and just rolling from there. Right? We miss the beginning, and your evaluation of your soul, your nature, and your worth will ultimately be wrong because the... Yes, we're fallen. Sometimes our theology starts there, that we're fallen, we're broken. But the very idea of a fall means you fell from somewhere. And we fell from incredible heights. If you begin the story of redemption from the beginning, starting in Genesis, you'll see something eye-opening. It says in Genesis 2-7, before the first relationship between Adam and Eve, before the first marriage, we see that they were created from the clay of the earth. Dust and dirt, God breathed into it. And then we see one essential detail in Genesis 1.27 where it says God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. As a former art major, I can dig this, that we too should be creative like God because we're created in his image. That when we write a song, make a piece of art, uh, write a story. When you're creative, there's like this little stamp of divinity on it because God, the creator, he made us in his image. But then you keep reading from Genesis and you see in Exodus, he says, don't make any images of God to worship, right? Don't make any images of God. And, and this, for many reasons, I could preach a whole sermon on that, but I believe one that's relevant to this discussion is because he had already designated those that were supposed to bear his image. He created humanity to bear his image. We didn't need to add to that. We were made by God to be his image bearers. People learn better, again, using imagery, and God gives humanity this snapshot of his goodness in us. And it sure doesn't seem that way because, yes, we're broken, but before we were broken, we were created as image bearers. And sure, we've messed that image up in a major way through sin and brokenness, and, and that's the bad news of the gospel. You're more messed up than you would often think or believe. But the good news is that mess is God's specialty. <laughs> There's no mess too big for him. He can take a, a broken, shattered lump of clay and still make something beautiful out of it. In the same, thay, the same way that he can transform clay and we can transform clay with our hands, he does the same with us. But what does any of this have to do with love? Well, if you look at love in our culture, so often it boils down to we want somebody 
who will love us like we are, accept us for who we are. We want a relationship that's based on self-fulfillment, not self-denial. The ideal soulmate for so many is low maintenance, meets my needs, makes few demands on me, and they're not going to force me to change because they love me as I am. And when you look at the love of God, it's true that he loves us so much that he meets us where we are. And at first glance, this resembles the love that we all seek as a culture. So we love to stop there, that God meets us where we are. He becomes this God who loves us for who we are, where we are. But if we take that too far, he becomes a God who bows at this altar of tolerance. God doesn't stop there. God loves us so much that he doesn't leave us where we are. He reforms us, transforms us. He conforms us to the image of Christ. He calls us to conform. Our caring creator calls us to conform into the image of Christ. If, but again, we so often want a relationship that's built on comfort, not conforming, not changing. But think about love for a minute. Your experience of love in serious relationships like marriage. Love sometimes can ruin our plans. It can disrupt. Love demands. It stakes claims. Love gets in our face. Love changes our opinion. Love moves us towards places we never choose on our own. Love wrecks our lives as we know it. Love calls us to change. And God is love, and God is this potter, and we're the clay, and our caring creator, he calls us to conform, specifically to the image of Christ. It says in Romans 8.29 that he predestined his people to be conformed into the image of his son, Jesus. Again, we're called to be God's image bearers, and Jesus paints the perfect picture of God. It says in Colossians 1.15 that Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. It's no coincidence that we're called to be Christians, which means little Christ, because if we bear God's image, we will look like Christ did. But that's easier said than done, right? Especially as we do life here and now. And if we keep turning in Paul's letter to Rome, eventually he says in Romans 12, he gives this warning, don't conform to the patterns of this world. And when you consider your life, you're on this wheel, you're this clay, you're going to conform to one or the other. We have the option. I can conform to look more like Christ daily or I'll end up looking more like the world daily and conforming to their idea of what life should be and what truth should be. But God in his love, in his love, conforms us into the image of Christ or calls us to conform. And how do we apply this? This is all lofty talk. How does it affect the way we live this week? Man, every week in this series, I hope to just give something practical. Life application for our relationships. Because we are called to love as Christ did, be it with spouses or your family, your kids, or the family of faith or coworkers, whatever. We're called to love like Christ did. So if we want to be conformed to the image of Christ and help others do the same, how do we do it? I believe we find one key in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, where it says, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ. If we want to grow to look like Christ, phase one is get rooted around people who are following Christ like you are, who are seeking to be like Christ like you are, who speak the truth like Christ did. Ephesians 4 is one of Paul's many passages where he talks about this metaphor of the body of Christ. And it's where we see one of dozens of, quote, one another's in the New Testament, where we're changed, we're transformed because we do life with one another. So one of God's tools that he uses to shape us and call us to conform with is others. These one another's that we find in the body of Christ. But the second one is present in this verse. It's communication. Not just any communication, but truth spoken in love, covered in God's grace. You know, the common phrase, truth hurts, is often 
ironically, painfully true. But that's why scripture says you don't just give truth alone. It's to be paired with love. You know, so often our culture would pit them as opposites, where love and unity and tolerance, they make truth optional. But, man, 1 Corinthians 13, 6 says love rejoices with the truth. Love rejoices with the truth. You know, Jesus, who John's gospel introduces as the word, says he came in grace and truth. And the communication that we speak, God, the the words that come out of our mouth should be paired in the same way with grace and truth, love and truth. Tim Keller put in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, he says that love without truth is sentimentality. It supports and affirms us but keeps us in denial about our flaws. But on the other hand, truth without love is harshness. It gives us information but in such a way that we cannot really hear it. And love without truth is sentimentality. Our culture majors in this. Right? This popular phrase, love wins, is often at the cost of truth. In 2016, we've talked about this before, the word of the year was post-truth, which the very meaning meant that, that feelings transcend facts when it comes to life decisions or, or your life, that, that what makes you feel happy is more important than truth when it comes to how you live your life or how you make decisions. And it's where we now, as we progress into 2018, we get this phrase, my truth. And again, I've said it before, your life, your story, your life experiences, they all have immense value. Why? because you have value. You're made in the image of God to be his image bearer. Because of that, we have inherent dignity and value. But this idea of my truth, man, truth is transcendent. It's not subjective. Truth is all-encompassing. Christians, we need to be able to communicate this truth, but it's, it's not easy. It's not easy. But a question we should often pose when we're looking at our own lives, when we're looking at our own lives is, am I being made in the image of God Or have I made God conform to me? Are we being made into the image of God or have we shaped God into our image? Because God doesn't conform to us. We're called to conform to him, to be his image bearers. There's an old song, though. My parents raised me with Christian music like Phil Keggy, Rich Mullins. I don't even remember who who sang this lyric. I can find it on Google, but I don't know who sang it. It's old, though. It says, we put a mirror in the sky. We look up and see ourselves magnified. Our God looks just like you and I. We've put a mirror in the sky. But this, this isn't new to 2018. It's not new to 2016 when the word post-truth uh, became the word of the year. It's not new to whenever this song was written back in the 90s. Maybe John Mayer is too new way for you. He's not your cup of tea. Maybe uh, you've never heard that song, Mirror in the Sky. Maybe your uh, music is a little more like Billy Joel. Billy Joel wrote a song called Honesty. Yeah, my parents raised me on good music. It says in this song, if you look for truthfulness, you might just as well be blind. It always seems so hard to give. Honesty is such a lonely word. Everyone is so untrue. Honesty is hardly ever heard and mostly what I need from you. See, when we ditch the truth in the name of love, we often ditch what we really need from one another. Our culture, again, is long majored in what Tim Keller calls sentimentality, ditching the truth that would otherwise challenge us, change us, and shape us. And we as Christians, we need to be communications majors. Christ-like communication that speaks the truth in love covered in God's grace. You know, it takes a couple things. One, we have to know God's truth. We can't speak it if we're not in God's truth, if we're not in his word and spending time to know his truth better. But secondly, we have to speak the truth in love. That's Christ-like communication. It's a tool that God uses to shape us 
and mold us like he would clay to look more like Christ. But as Billy Joel said in his lyric, truthfulness always seems so hard to give. How do we speak the truth in love well? Growing in every way more and more like Christ around other people that are trying to grow in every way more and more like Christ. Well, I simply want to give you three uh, things that I haven't mastered by any means, but three ways that we can communicate truth in love well. There's three because things come in packages of three. That's the way people remember it. And they're all T because pastors all have alliteration addiction. So there's three T's. <laughs> the first is tone. Tone. You know what blows my mind is it's almost been a year since Steph and I adopted Raj from India. We met him on February 27th. We took him home on February 28th. And it was March 9th when we brought him back to the States. And that blows my mind that we carried him out of that orphanage almost a year ago today. And he's two. He turned two in October. And he's trilingual. He knows a little Marathi, which is the native dialect there in India. Uh, he knows a little Marathi. He knows a little English. And he knows a little sign language. So he's basically a genius. He's trilingual. But if you know him, he knows about two words in each one of those. He knows sit down in Marathi. <laughs> he knows come here in Marathi. And then he knows a couple things in sign language like more and uh, finished. And he knows a few words in English. I like to think he probably understands more than he gives on. Like as soon as I'm asking him to do something, he's like, I don't, I don't know what that means. But uh, I say all that to say when I communicate with my son, most of it's about tone. And I love that when I raise my voice right now, like when I start yelling, he laughs. Because usually when I'm raising my voice, I'm goofing off. Hopefully it stays that way, right? And it's the same way with Steph, though. So much of communication boils down to tone. Steph asked me to do something. I say, all right, Steph, I got it. Or I say, all right, Steph, I got it. Same thing, totally different tone, right? Tone sets the atmosphere. And your tone should communicate one thing, I care. Sacrifice the tone, inevitably you'll end up sacrificing the communication. That's why communication, listen, is so hard on social media, specifically sharing the truth in love. Why? Because tone is entirely absent, entirely absent. But you, I know how it happens. You see somebody put something out there that you believe is wrong, and somehow you feel attacked because it's a knock on your beliefs, and you feel this undeniable itch to jump into the fray. I'm not immune. I just end up hitting the delete button a lot more than I hit the enter button. Why? Because Facebook debates, as we all love to call them, they're more often than not entirely fruitless. Why? Because there's no tone. If you ever studied on like a debate team in high school and competitions, you practice three things. You practice your speed, your, your tone, and your volume. None of those are present on your keyboard. None of them. And it's why you see so many miscommunications and misfires on Facebook rather than genuine fruitful communication. I've said it before. A coffee table is way more better th for these conversations than a keyboard. But that's a rabbit I could literally go down that all night. So that's tone. Sacrifice the tone, you can sacrifice the atmosphere that, that God is calling you to establish so that you can communicate the truth in love. We have to watch our tone. But the second is time. Time. The reality is that you can't microwave conversations. And at the hectic pace of life that most of us live in, we try to just push through and rush communication. We have to be proactive with communication. Man, if you're married, let me just encourage you, establish some proactive communication time, which is simply talking before you fight. It's agreeing before the disagreement. Think about it. Would you rather have 40 minutes of scheduled time every week where you're just breaking down what, what you're going through, what you're feeling, what maybe is frustrating you, and just talking it through for 40 minutes, or would you rather argue over the same things again and again for 40 weeks? It's the way I look at it. Be proactive in your communication. And realize this, man, if the devil can't stop you so often, he'll get behind you and push you until you're going too fast. 
It's so true in life when you talk about rest and God's call for us to rest, but it's so true also in our relationships and our communication. Man, invest time, not just in your marriage, but in relationships that are, are there to hold you accountable. Not just for the things that you might do wrong, but for the things God is calling you to do for him. And Maybe you're too timid, but invest your time in relationships. Invest your time in communication, sharing your heart with your loved ones. Slow down, pause, make time, and proactively invest time into communication. That's tone, time, and then lastly, trust. You know, patiently listening to somebody, it builds trust. Allowing your friend, your spouse to, to vent builds trust. Men, listen up. Like for us, we vent in three minutes. For my wife, it's 30 minutes. But when you patiently listen, that builds trust. Loving listening says, hey, I may not understand it, but I'll respect it, and you don't have to pay the price for saying it. Right? Controlling relationships make you pay the price for saying how you feel. But, man, a, a trusting, loving listening says, I may not understand it, but I'll respect it, and you don't have to pay the price for saying it. Two other keys to trust and communication are simply confidentiality. You tell me something in trusting that I'm going to keep it confidential. I'm not going to, one, share it with the world, or, two, use it against you in future ar- arguments. And then, two, responsibility. Man, take responsibility when you use the wrong tone or say the wrong thing. If you haven't said I'm sorry to your spouse in six months or a year, you're probably not communicating, right? <laughs> I'm sorry. Why? Because if we're all honest, we're all a work in progress. And I know for me there are days where I wish I could put my foot in my mouth. There are days where, where I need to say sorry because this is just the reality. You know what? It shows us that learning to speak the truth in love, it doesn't just shape those around us, but it really does shape us because it's not easy. And it teaches us the, the fruits of the Spirit as we communicate, and it, it makes us Christ-like. And again, it, this is a work that God's going to be doing in us till we meet him in heaven. We're never going to arrive, right? but that doesn't disqualify us. Right? Sometimes we get discouraged, we, we give up, but that doesn't disqualify us. If looking like Jesus is the aim, again, we got our work cut out for us till our final day, but Christ came in the image of God, and God is love, and love is complicated, but God gives us images in Scripture to teach us about his love and how that should inform how we walk in love. And tonight the potter forms the clay, and in the same way our caring, loving creator, he calls us to be conformed to Christ, to once again become the image bearers that he created us to be. It takes work. (laughs) It takes a lifetime, but it's our calling. Again, the bad news is that we're broken and misshapen by sin, but that's not the beginning of it. We turn to the beginning. We were created in God's image to bear God's image. To forget that is to suffer from some kind of spiritual amnesia. We forget that the story of God's love and redemption goes way back further than the story of Helen and Troy. And that as it says in Ephesians 1, he's had us in mind from the beginning of the earth. If I could have the worship team come up, you know, we're broken. It's not the beginning of it, and nor is it the end of it. Again, God loves us enough that he met us where we are. And God loves us enough not to leave us there. And not just that, he loves us enough that he left where he was, heaven. We started with this verse, very first verse we read tonight, Isaiah 64, 1. It says, oh, that you would burst from the heavens and come down. This was Isaiah crying out to God this hundreds of years before Jesus came. Jesus did come from the heavens and come down. And that's the beauty of Easter. That's still over a month away. But we were stolen from this relationship we were created for. Intimate relationship and communication with God. And he launched the greatest rescue campaign in history 
to get us back, this campaign of redemption. And God Almighty, God Almighty came in the flesh of a newborn child, not just a 2D picture to hold, but a 3D life to behold. That Jesus Christ, he came as, as this Trojan horse of biblical proportions, stepping into humanity to ultimately die for us, ultimately die on a cross, rise from the grave as we celebrate an Easter. He risked it all to rescue us. Now, why did he do it? It's funny, you ask different people, they might give you different answers. He wants us to, to adhere to his commands. He wants morality, or maybe somebody would say he wants us to be happy. He wants our contentment in life. He wants us to be able to be happy, but maybe it was something altogether different. Isaiah also wrote in, in what's chapter 29 and verse 13 of his book, in a verse Jesus quotes himself when he's on his earthly mission. He says, right, they, they go through the motions, they practice religion, but their hearts are far from me. God went the distance to meet us, leaving heaven and not leaving us where he found us. And God's heart for us, his love for us, is that we would come back into intimate communion with him. And it's in this relationship and in the relationship with others in that same pursuit that we're conformed back into the image of Christ, that, that we reach not only the relationship of the garden, but the calling of the garden to be his image bearers, shaped by love, shaped by truth, clay in the hands of the potter, conformed back into his image of the invisible God, Jesus Christ. God, tonight as we go back into worship, God, I pray that we would be in people that encounter your presence. There's many ways to do that, but I pray specifically we would be a people that chase after you in your word. God, that, that want to know more of your truth. God, as Jesus prayed, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth, God. As we seek daily to be sanctified, look more like Jesus, I pray that we would commit ourselves to your word and knowing what it says and what it commands and what it tells us and calls us to, Lord God so that we can encounter you and, and be image bearers. God, I pray that we would be people. Talk about embracing your people, God, who embrace the family of faith, doing life, not just 90 minutes on a weekend. Let that be the tip of the iceberg. Let the 90% be the, the life we do together throughout the week with people who want to be more Christ-like, who share the truth with us in love as we, we provoke one another to good deeds and to looking like you. And lastly, Lord God, let us be a people that engage your mission again. Be your image bearers. Be a light, God, to our culture, to our world, to our region. But that doesn't happen unless we chase after looking like you again. If we could stand as we're going back into worship. Even as I was sharing Isaiah 29, verse 13, where it says, they do all this, but their hearts are far from me. And if tonight you would say, man, it feels like my heart is far from God. Maybe it's because you never once in your life, come to Jesus and said, I want you to be Lord, Savior, redeem my life. And like it says in Romans 3.20, open that door and come into my heart. If that's you and you've never done that, we would love to pray for you. I would love to pray for you right here. But you know what? Maybe there's just, you feel far from God and maybe it's just discouragement. Maybe it's depression. Maybe it's just the circumstances of this week and you need to shift your perspective. Well, one, I pray as we worship tonight and it talks about that heaven, God's presence, that you would just sing these words over your own life. Make them your prayer. But then also, again, if you need prayer, I'll be right here during the song, after service. But man, just for everyone here, can we just pray together? Can we just say these words, Lord God, 
Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he came in grace and he came in truth. And that signifies your love. And God, that signifies your goodness. Jesus, I ask tonight that as you knock, I invite you in. Be my Lord, be my Savior. I believe with my heart and confess with my mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. God, we know that it says in Philippians 2 that ultimately every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. God, I pray that for every person here that would be tonight. Before we leave this place, we could say, Jesus Christ, your Lord, your Savior, your good, and stand under the glorious work of the cross, Lord God. We worship you for it now. In Jesus' name.